Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for August 23rd, 2018. Uh, so, um, <laughs> after a very false start on Tuesday, in which I tried to interview Michael Johanna, who's a, a recent graduate of UC Berkeley Law School, who's written a piece for Fellow Travelers blog on the war against weapon states, uh, which I will link to in the show description, uh, after trying to interview him on Tuesday and uh, getting hit with a thunderstorm and losing power about literally about five minutes after we started talking to one another. Um, we're back to try again. Uh, in a couple of minutes here, I will be joined by Michael via Skype. Uh, he's been very gracious about uh, and flexible about his time, and I really appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to hear we had a little technical difficulty at times in the interview with a lousy internet connection i'm not entirely sure why that was uh but i hope uh th there will be a couple of parts where it's hard to make out but uh, i hope you get the gist of everything i think it i think it's fine i think it's uh, you know most of it is fine there's just a couple of couple of segments where it goes a little wonky on the the sound um, but, uh, we're going to talk about his piece. We're going to talk about what weapon states are. We're going to talk about weapons of mass destruction. And we're going to talk about, uh, how leftists or people who are interested in a left-wing foreign policy can grapple with the, I, the issue of WMD and, and, you know, what we can do to, um, acknowledge that these are dangerous weapons and we don't like them and would really prefer that nobody have them uh, while not falling into the same pattern of the sort of current U.S. foreign policy that assumes unto uh, we, where we assume unto ourselves the right to police the rest of the world and police WMD and uh, decide who can have them and who can't and, and uh, that gets us into a lot of things like our current back and forth with Iran, our current back and forth with North Korea, our invasion of Iraq, um, you know, a lot of places that we don't necessarily want U.S. foreign policy to go. Uh, I think the war on this war on weapon states that Michael talks about uh, explains a lot of that stuff in a way that the the war on terror doesn't, even though the war on terror is sort of the uh, overarching theme of U.S. foreign policy in the post 9-11 period. Uh, it's sort of sucked uh, sucked in this idea of the war against weapon states and the, the concern over WMD. Uh, but I think they're separate issues, and it's important to, to deal with them separately. Uh, and so we're going to talk about the weapon state aspect of American foreign policy uh, with Michael here in just a minute. He'll be joining me via Skype, uh, and uh, we'll get that started now, I guess. Okay, I'm here with Michael Johanna. Uh, we've been having a lot of technical difficulties Uh <laughs> Chief among them, we were supposed to do this interview on Tuesday, and I got a thunderstorm, and my power went out, and we had to try again. So, uh, Michael, thank you for being willing to come back uh, and do this a second time. Um, Michael has written a piece for the Fellow Travelers blog, which I'll link to in the show description, called Ending the War on Weapon States, and that's what we're here to talk about. Michael, again, thank you for your flexibility, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me back on, and it was nice to have a few sort of rehearsal runs before we got into <laughs> yeah, the discussion. Yeah, we've had a lot of trouble with me, technically, uh, for whatever reason today. Uh, 
but anyway, uh, now that I think we're okay, uh, Michael, talk about what weapon states are. Where does the term come from? And, uh, you know, describe what they are. So the term weapon states comes from a uh, seminal Charles Krauthammer article that was published um, actually just after uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and soon after the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and the article is called uh, The Unipolar Moment, and it's a reflection on uh, America's newly acquired status as uh, the sole superpower in the world. And uh, it's not as triumphalist as some of the uh, other pieces that are coming out around the same time. Um, uh, Krauthammer is very much looking for sort of new threats on the horizon. And one threat he identifies is um, this uh, idea of the weapon state. And he's, he's because it's just after the invasion of Kuwait, he's got Iraq in mind when he's coming up with this idea. Um, and what a weapon state is to him is... Um, a state that holds uh, grievances against the West, in his um, phrasing, uh, and it's a state that is autocratic. And uh, because it's autocratic during this time of uh, sort of triumphant liberal democracy, and because it holds deep grievances against the West as the West is um, ascendant, uh, this these these weapon states have a drive to sort of stockpile um, weapons of mass destruction and uh, basically close the gap in power between um, the United States and the West and uh, these sort of small-time autocracies. So you, you read Crowdhammer, and I, uh, I have questions about, because <laughs> this, is, this is where a lot of post-Cold War U.S. foreign policy has come from, I think, is from the idea that the United States alone, essentially, I mean, you know, we sometimes try to do this in concert with other countries, but uh, as the invasion of Iraq showed, we're more than willing to do this by ourselves if uh, nobody else wants to join us. Uh, the idea that the United States should have the authority or the right uh, to police weapons of mass destruction around the world. And if countries have them that we don't want to have them for whatever reason, uh, it's our, it's, it's within our purview to do something about it. Does Crowdhammer or did Crowdhammer, you know, when he wrote about this or anybody else who kind of touched on this idea, uh, especially in the pre 9-11 period did they ever offer a justification as to why this should be america's responsibility or uh, why america should have the right to to do this uh in in the unipolar moment uh krauthammer discusses the the idea of multilateralism um and says it's sort of a pious farce um again to use his his phrasing um, and he also has a few lines in the piece about how the UN can barely uh, be said to exist. Uh, uh, that 
basically, if the United States doesn't take the leadership role, as it was at, at the time he was writing, in his view, uh, to sort of respond to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, then the international community would not have the wherewithal to sort of mobilize against threats to uh, uh what he conceived of as this new emergent liberal democratic order. Um, and, and so his argument uh, is, in a way, a sort of standard uh, neoconservative argument that the only thing that, that stands between uh, the global order and sort of an anarchic abyss is uh, a powerful and assertive United States. Um, uh, so even though it was before 9-11, uh, those themes were present. Talk about, and again, I want to I stick to the, the pre-9-11 period, the sort of, I mean, you know, it was about a decade, I guess, between the end of the, the Cold War uh, and the rise of the, the dastardly threat of Islamic terrorism. Um, because that was a period where U.S. foreign policy, I think, was really struggling or um, maybe not so much foreign policy in general, but the military establishment was struggling to come up with a reason uh, for its continued kind of preeminence in, in uh, Washington. Um, how did the, the idea of policing WMDs and, and weapon states uh, play into uh, the sort of search for a new U.S. identity in the world after the, the Cold War ended. Sure. So, so what prompted me to write this piece um, was actually another essay written um, over a decade ago by Corey Robin called Grand Designs. It's featured in his wonderful book, The Reactionary Mind, um, where, he, as, as you mentioned, he makes the argument that in the post-Cold War moment, there was a sort of anxiety that gripped a lot of American uh, foreign policy and national security elites, um, because there was a big mismatch between um, this massive military that we'd built up over the course of a Cold War and a world that seemed uh, to a lot of people to suddenly be devoid of any real threat with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, there was no real competitor to the United States. And so there, there was sort of a bit of um, uh, a search among uh, elites during this time period for reasons to uh, accumulate and and deploy U.S. military power. And the argument in my piece is that uh, basically um, a broad, uh, open-ended war against this idea of weapon states um, is was one um, potential justification for this accumulation and use of power. Uh, other pre-9-11 uh, justifications that I'm sure many of your viewers are familiar with are sort of this idea that the U.S. needs to go around and uh, promote democracy around the globe. That has a sort of pre-9-11 pre, pre um, uh, vintage, I guess. Uh, the, it, it was the, the basis for our invasion of uh of Haiti that went relatively smoothly compared to the, the subsequent Iraq war. Um, it, there, those Democrat, democratic liberationist themes are present in the 1998 Iraq Liberation Act um, as well, which uh, was a pre-9-11 um, sort of envisioning of regime change in, in 
Iraq. Um, and then uh, a, a third uh, justification for the sort of excess of power that the United States had um, during this decade of the 1990s um, is something that I'm, again, I'm sure all of your, your listeners are familiar with, which was this, this doctrine of humanitarian intervention, which is probably um, best embodied in Samantha Power's uh, A Problem from Hell book. Um, and uh, that that sort of doctrine reached its apogee in, in the intervention in Kosovo in the late 1990s. So um, while the d democratic liberationist um, sort of justification has fallen by the wayside in the wake of the Iraq war. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to argue is that uh, this war on weapon states remains very much alive um, today. Yeah, it seems to be the one of the three of them. I mean, I, I think the, the notion of humanitarian intervention still survives on the left to some degree, but, but the Iraq war kind of rinse that out of a lot of people i think um, right you know sort of among this the samantha power types but they're, they're not really uh as as prominent i mean they're still very prominent in the democratic party but they're not as like loud and proud about it i think as they were uh, I, many years ago i think the the doctrine really took a hit after libya in particular during the obama era yeah that's um, that's another one that, that really you're right yeah, because they, during the 1990s, it had sort of a unilateralist flavor. Um, uh, the humanitarian intervention is justified, even if the UN Security Council um, doesn't approve of it, as we saw in Kosovo. Then um, they started to tweak it a little bit in the early aughts um, with this idea of the responsibility to protect doctrine, which uh, was a sort of more well thought out and multilateralist approach to humanitarian intervention, but it, it really, the limits of, of that, that vision really um, were on display in the wake of the, the Libya intervention. So, you know, that, that kind of fell by the wayside and democracy prevention. I mean, even the neocons don't pretend that much to care about democracy anymore. Yeah. Um, but the the war on weapon states, I think, has managed to kind of uh, kind of flow right into the war on terror in a very neat way. And, and they dovetail to the extent that you can one of the arguments that you can make about weapon states, about sort of rogue actors that have chemical weapons or biological weapons or you know even nuclear weapons is that they will sell them to terrorists not that they'll use them themselves but they'll you know you'll have a, a suitcase nuke that somebody buys from pyongyang and and gets into a u.s city and does terrible damage so they they kind of fit the same sort of um they fit similar scenarios that that we try to feed i think the american public to uh to keep people afraid um talk about talk about that because that was a that's a very it was a very quick shift of course from 9-11 to let's invade iraq which didn't have anything to do with 9-11 uh the case for invading iraq relied quite a bit on uh, the notion of Iraq developing weapons of mass destruction, and it really was more of a fit for this war on weapon states rather than the war on terror. And yet, it was sold to people 
under the, the umbrella really of the war on terror it was it was it was considered it was sold to people as part of that not as a, a separate thing can you talk about how these two uh, i don't want to call them conflicts but never-ending kind of wars on stuff uh talk about how they've they've worked together uh to formulate post 9-11 foreign policy Sure. Um, you know, I'd, I'd urge um, your listeners to go back and read the 2002 uh, National Security Strategy that the Bush administration's Office of Legal Counsel published, because um, it's really emblematic of this, um, th- this notion that you are uh, describing, uh, that the, the war on weapons states, um, fear of, uh, of, uh, of uh, anti-West autocracy, stockpiling weapons of mass destruction, um, uh, merging with our, with our uh, second fear of a 9-11 style attack. Um, uh, the, the, the 2002 National Security Strategy um, argues for basically preemptive um, military uh, interventions to defend the United States um, against weapon states precisely because um, the weapons of mass destruction might somehow be funneled into a uh, spectacular terror attack like the one we saw September 11th. Um, uh, so that that those two strands sort of self Self, were self-consciously merged by um, the architects of the Iraq War um, during the, the Bush administration. The Iraq War is really interesting and, and sort of, uh, I think, perplexing for a lot, a lot of people because it actually, the, the justifications proposed um, for the Iraq War by both pundits and, and the Bush administration um, sort of merged all four of these strands of, of justifications for, uh, again, the accumulation and the use of American military power in the post-Cold War era um, together. They sort of all are conflated. So you have um, uh, the idea of the Iraq War as a response to um, uh, the Saddam Hussein regime's um, horrible atrocities against um, Kurds and Shia over the course of the, um, his tenure as ruler of Iraq. Um, you also have this, again, this idea that we're bringing democracy in, to Iraq was um, very present, especially as the occupation dragged on. Um, and and you have the, the fear of the war on terror and the fear of the weapon state um, all lumped in together there. Um, but by the time we exited Iraq, and definitely by 2016, um, the the humanitarian interventionist strand and the uh, and the democratic liberationist strand are utterly discredited. Um, but the the war on terror narrative and the war on weapons narrative um, are sort of uh, uh, apt for. Uh, this sort of Trumpist America first era that we we are presently um, in, uh, in that the the war on terror narrative uh, sort of uh, is uh, comports with Trump's Islamophobic clash of civilizations type vision um, for foreign policy that he promoted on the campaign trail, and uh, the war on weapon states is is 
a great narrative for somebody um, who is concerned about America's loss of uh, superpower status or the potential for America's loss of superpower status in the world, uh, because it's hard for uh, America to be great if a small-time um, uh, autocracy, like let's say North Korea, is able to blackmail the United States into uh, negotiations um, just based by virtue of it having uh, weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. It, it, I think the Iraq war was, and we're, we're sort of forgetting Afghanistan because Afghanistan was the war that in a sense sold itself. We were attacked and, and the response was, you know, was easy to convince people to, uh, that there needed to be a response, but the war on Iraq had to be sold. And I think you're right. It, it sort of, part of the reason that their sales pitch jumped from one idea to the other is because the United States at the time, and, you know, we were still sort of processing uh, the events of 9-11, but we were sort of still trying to work through the three kind of competing principles, foreign policy principles that you talked about, the humanitarian, the democratization, and this, you know, idea that we need to, to do something about rogue weapon states. And, you know, so they, they try to use all three, and, and it kind of, you know led to some disjointed, I think, uh, PR efforts. Uh, but the war itself, uh, you know, it, it discredited the humanitarian aspect and the democratization aspect because you can look at what happened and sort of point to that and say, well, these were obviously, you know, this was misguided and it didn't work. Uh, and, you know, moving forward, there's there's no reason to believe that it would work in any other situation. And then, you know, you add Libya to that and it sort of further discredits the notion that you can, uh, you know, that you can really achieve these aims through force of arms. But the, the war, the idea of, of rogue states with weapons of mass destruction is different, even though we didn't find any. And even though, you know, the, the lesson of one of the lessons of Iraq should have been probably to listen to weapons inspectors when they say there's nothing going on here or, you know, we don't think that, that this invasion is justified. Um, <laughs> it's still, it's still like, it lingers out there because it's a fear. It's sort of an intangible fear of a thing that might happen uh, that hasn't happened, but that you can still kind of get away with scaring people about. Is, do you think that's, I mean, do you think that's why it's kind of continued uh, to have salience despite uh, the 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 sort of the way the Iraq War played out. Yeah, so I think there are two distinctive fears. Um, one is the fear of the spectacular uh, mass casualty attack, um, and that's a very post two thousand and one fear. But there's an earlier fear that you see in the nineteen nineties of um, states that have no business uh, sort of uh, being of the United States um, in the mind of sort of uh, see uh, being elevated to a sort of a superpower status or, or a quasi superpower status simply by virtue of the fact that they've got these uh, horrible uh, weapons um, that, that, that can act as a deterrent. Um, and, and I think that those two 
those two fears are very much at the heart of why um, the, that narrative uh, remains salient. So, well, okay, let's let's talk about the flip side of this issue, which is uh, that the United States doesn't have a problem with some weapon states. Uh, we don't have a problem with Israel's undeclared nuclear arsenal and whatever else they may have. Um, you know, we're not preparing to invade India or Pakistan over their nuclear programs. Um, how, how do you explain, I guess, or, or, um, how does the United States decide which countries, uh, are allowed to have these weapons or develop them and which countries aren't allowed to do that? Is it a case of, you know, countries that, that have covert programs and get all the way up to the point where they have a, they develop a nuclear weapon or they develop a you know chemical weapon uh, they sort of skate through because the US doesn't want to risk uh, a retaliation uh, whereas countries like Iran that we only sort of theorize have these programs but don't actually have the weapons uh, they're the ones that, that the United States comes down on because we can still sort of, muscle them around without worrying too much about the the sort of repercussions of that or is it something else like what's the what what's at play here for uh the u.s and is this something do you think that hurts the case that the united states tries to make when it argues that uh you know when it, it sort of pressures iran or it pressures north korea or it pressures syria and meanwhile it's turned a blind eye to to weapons programs in you know how many other states yeah so i i think one of the the key arguments i'm trying to make in my article and that um that is sort of explicit in um the pieces that discuss weapon states by uh let's say Anthony Lake or Charles Krauthammer or David Frum, um, is that a state is not a weapon state or uh, to use alternative phrasing as it developed throughout the 1990s, a rogue state or a backlash state because it has weapons of mass destruction. It's a weapon state because it harbors deep grievances against um, the United States for whatever historical reason and uh it's and those and it's a weapon state because it's sort of hostile um to uh the u.s mode of democratic governance um uh so that's to me that's why a state like india or a state like um, uh, uh, Israel would not sort of fall under the the, the scope of that definition. Um, but I think you're right to um, acknowledge that once a state actually develops a weapon of mass destruction, the dynamic changes. I think. We, we're seeing this to some degree um, with the sort of dramatic change in um, relations with North Korea in the 
past few few months and uh but but uh and and also historically um we we eventually made peace with the fact that uh, states that we didn't want to develop weapons like china um ended up developing them and after a certain amount of time we no longer sort of felt this compulsion to 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 disarm them anymore um so i think that that the national security elites recognize that there that there are limits the sort of this disarmament drive but i don't think you a, a weapon state necessarily inculates itself just by having crossed the threshold from uh from basically developing weapons to acquiring a weapon um uh, especially if the weapon is uh, a, a chemical weapon i guess in the case of syria we're seeing that there there will still there, there's not necessarily um the the fact that syria has chemical weapons hasn't sort of normalized its relations with the west so i don't know if that answers your question yeah i think i mean i, I nuclear weapons are the the ultimate i mean i think you know the, yeah. that's that's where you see the United States sort of pivot when a country like North Korea, when North Korea comes out and says we've got nukes, it sort of changes the whole ball game. But even in the North Korean example, um, not like the Trump administration isn't giving up um, this idea of a denuclearized peninsula, and they're still sort of insisting that they're going to get to the point where North Korea is going to uh, basically give up its weapons, even though it seems highly unlikely to most experts that i've read <laughs> at, or listened at, to. at best highly unlikely yeah yeah um so the it, it might be that there, there comes a point in the future where an american administration makes peace with the fact that that uh, north korea has weapons but to me it still seems to at least be in this sort of transitional state where a lot of people um in the sort of uh foreign policy community still continue to view um north korea as a weapon state in the same way that they view syria as a weapon state or iran as a weapon state i yeah i mean what it'll take i guess is i mean the, the it'll it'll take improvements in other aspects of the relationship and i guess the question is uh you know because as you say the the weapon state definition doesn't just mean they have weapons it has to do basically with how uh, kind of compliant they are with american foreign policy and you know if if the u.s and north korea develop relations separate from the the nuclear issue then you know maybe that that'll take north korea kind of off the list but the question is can that happen since the the nuclear issue is sort of so preeminent um you know can can you actually get past that and uh get to a place where you're sort of okay with the uh, north korean you know the fact that north korea has nuclear weapons and is not i mean you know i know the the there's like the slimmest of slim chances they might disarm but in all likelihood is not going to give them up and how do you come to a place where you can live with that you know that that seems to me to be the the debate that some other administration some other more thoughtful administration is going to have to have not this one uh because they're incapable of it but some other administration is going to have to have that discussion at some point i i think that 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 is the key point 
though, is that it's the the ownership of the nuclear weapons is not the sticking point. It is the the broader relationship with the United States, um, and that's true. I I was listening to an interview with Tom Cotton a few months ago, probably because I hate myself, um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, he was uh, basically trying to thread the needle um, uh, in his. Uh, defense of um, Trump's negotiations with uh, North Korea as the Trump administration is uh, acting in increasingly bellicose ways towards Iran. And he was trying to explain why, in his view, um, uh, that was a consistent point of view. And um, basically, his argument was that Iran has sort of uh, an expansionist uh, or or a more aggressive foreign policy um, than uh, North Korea uh, uh, in a region that is of great strategic import for the United States, um, and therefore a more aggressive attitude um, towards Iran is justified. Uh, whereas with North Korea, our only real um, sort of uh, argument with them is the fact that that they uh, uh, are be, or the, our primary argument with them has to do with disarmament and it's less about sort of regional concerns because they are a smaller player um, in that area yeah but i mean even there the the argument is i mean it's still about the fact that iran doesn't kind of get with the program as far as the u.s is concerned iran's regional policy isn't any more aggressive than saudi arabia's it's just that it is we we you know perceive it to be at at cross purposes with the united states and that's the problem yeah. it's not you know yeah yeah it's not it's not just that it, that's exactly right it's not just that they have a sort of regional um uh foreign policy it's that the regional foreign policy um conflicts with uh american prerogatives in in the region um named primarily probably around israel but also the fact that they um antagonize uh the gulf states that we've thrown our lot in with uh this contributes to to that do you see any changes in the way that the Trump administration approaches, uh, I guess, the issue of proliferation in general, but, you know, specific, sort of the the weapon state idea and, and the issue of proliferation uh, as opposed, as compared with, uh, let's say, the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Clinton administration? I ask, you know, because we've, I mean, we've brought up Saudi Arabia now and there's a there's a a lot of talk about the United States helping Saudi Arabia develop a, a civilian nuclear program that the Saudis themselves have said they will turn into a weapons program if they perceive that Iran is developing nuclear weapons which you know I mean uh, you can come up with I mean there's there's you know the con consensus in the intelligence community is that Iran hasn't had an active nuclear weapons program for uh, 15 years at least. Uh, but, you know, the Saudis can, can uh, you know, presumably manufacture justification if they want. And so the, the concern is that if, you know, if the United States participates in helping them put together a civilian nuclear program, 
it it could be a vector for them to develop nuclear weapons. And I, I think, you know, for the Obama administration, they clearly were not keen on helping the Saudis develop a nuclear program uh, because the Saudis refused to sort of accept any kind of safeguards about weaponization. The Trump administration seems not to really be that concerned about the possibility of weaponization. And, and you know, the Trump is president deals, of course, and he wants to do business with everybody. And uh, he sees a lot of potential to make money for American nuclear firms. But I, I wonder also if there is a, a, a difference in the way this administration approaches these issues as opposed to, to previous ones. And if you've noticed anything like that. Well, there's there's as far as I know, and I'm, I'm not an expert on issues of, of non proliferation i'm sort of like a tourist um passing through this this subject uh, but i i uh as far as i i know from my layman's perspective uh, is that there's a sort of split in the american uh sort of foreign policy making community um a split of opinion on uh whether how big a deal it is that 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 nuclear um, proliferation in general is is a facet of the modern global order. Um, and there are people like John Mearsheimer uh, who uh, believe that uh, basically uh, it, weapons can actually uh, deter conflict in a lot of ways. So as long as they're... And, and what really matters is... Uh, who holds the weapon and uh, whether their their relationship to the United States is a positive one. Um, uh, and th there's and then there's a sort of you know countervailing view, which I think is probably the mainstream view um, that uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons is a, a terrible thing and that these are um, uh, devices that could basically wipe humanity off the map and that even if a weapon is sort of um, uh, being dispensed to an ally that we believe we can trust. Um, it, it's it's not a good thing for for them to to basically um, hold on to these um, these bombs. Uh, and it, I guess it's possible that someone in Trump's orbit has the the John Mearsheimer type view of of proliferation. That sort of um, talking him or sort of calming Trump down about the, the prospect of, of, of proliferation and sort of the implications of it to a state like Saudi Arabia. Um, but I, I really, it's tough for me to say what exactly the Trump administration is thinking. Another thing I want to ask you about it, uh, you kind of touch on this at the beginning of your piece, uh, the issue of chemical weapons, which is one that, um, people raise sometimes when they're talking about weapons of mass destruction uh, whether or not chemical weapons really belong in the same list with say biological weapons or nuclear weapons which can do unspeakable uh, amounts of damage and chemical weapons uh, can do horrible things but they're limited in terms of the the amount of harm that they can do in ways that I think nuclear and biological weapons are not um, where do you, you know, what, as you were reading sort of the arguments about why 
the use of chemical weapons in Syria gets kind of lumped into the same category as the threat of nukes from North Korea or the threat of biological weapons or, or you know, things like that, um, and why it has to be treated the same way or, you know, in the same kind of category of uh, threats. What did you encounter in terms of arguments for and against including chemical weapons on that list and and what how where did that leave you like what was your impression of uh whether or not this is a fair way to kind of lump these things together i think in the literature that i read it was sort of um assumed that chemical weapons would be included on that list and i realized that not um every type of chemical munition has uh the capacity to inflict uh, sort of uh, massive casualties in a particular area. But um, based on my layman's understanding of um, chemical weapons, there are some um, uh, weapons like, like sarin that are, although they're not nu- like nuclear devices being detonated, um, they, can, they can do quite, quite a bit of damage and kill um, uh, thousands of people in an indiscriminate uh, manner, uh, as we but saw that, in Eastern Gouda. Right. Um, there's, I mean, there's uh, a question though about whether they can kill that many more people, even in a single shot, than like a very large conventional device. And so, right. you know, whether whether they're really so much worse than kind of the heaviest conventional weapons that they belong in this special category of things that are, uh, you know, beyond the pale. Yeah, well, I think that the argument there would be if if there is a conventional weapon um, that is sort of as indiscriminate as sort of a, a sarin gas shell, um, then... then uh, the the argument would not be that the that we should consider sarin gas in the same category as a conventional weapon, but that this those classes of conventional weapon that that are highly indiscriminate and can inflict sort of mass civilian casualties should probably be uh, included in the weapon of mass destruction um, uh, category. So let's say I guess the mother of all bombs should maybe be in the same category as a chemical munition and not in a in the same category as i don't know like an ied yeah um, i mean the one i would the the weapons that i would be i would think of here are things like cluster bombs that are just you know hugely indiscriminate and uh, very deadly to civilian populations and and uh you know or or um, you know, you, you also get into, and I, we, we don't have to keep, you know, talking about this because it takes you into some strange places, but there are, you know, different gradations of chemical weapons. Chlorine gas isn't as bad as sarin or, or VX. And then you have, uh, things like white phosphorus that technically aren't chemical weapons, but when they're used against personnel, they definitely are chemical weapons. It's, it's all, you know, it gets right. you into, uh, and, kind of that- a lot of nitpicking that you don't necessarily find when you're talking about biologics or, or nukes that they're more kind of cut and dried yeah it's funny that you mentioned that um i took a our law on conflict class at berkeley and we had um a guest speaker uh 
who uh, basically was a lawyer for the military, um, whose name I won't mention, uh, who was talking to us about cluster munitions. Um, and a few students, including me, uh, uh, sort of raised questions about their indiscriminate nature. And his defense of the the sort of continued use of clustered munitions was that they are especially effective in um, some sort of military confrontations where it's sort of difficult to, let's say, there's certain types of clustered munitions that are especially effective at disabling like tanks. And then when students responded uh, to him by saying, well, couldn't you argue that there are some situations where, um, let's say, like mustard gas is uh, probably more effective than conventional munitions. Um, Does that mean that it should be legal? Uh, He didn't really give us like a a satisfying answer. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's all arbitrary. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're. I think you're right. I, I. I think the idea should be to get more kinds of weapons into the category of things that nobody should use, rather than you know, kind of cutting chemical weapons out of that category and shrinking it to to just the other two. I think you're right. The that's the way to go. Um, the, so to wrap up, I guess, um, I wanted to ask your thoughts for people who are, uh, you know, interested in critiquing American foreign policy from the left, who are thinking about ways to develop, uh, a, a left wing, truly left wing, not, you know, sort of centrist liberal but really left-wing foreign policy vision of how do you you know how can they kind of tackle with or grapple with the issue of weapon states uh how do they you know to grapple with the issue of the the war on weapon states and how you kind of critique what the united states is doing now but also you know how do you approach the issue that these are very dangerous weapons there are countries and you know maybe all countries maybe the the answer is nobody should have them uh, i would certainly agree with that but you know there are definitely countries that uh, we don't want to have these things um and you know how what's the what's the way to go about kind of tackling or you know wrestling with that issue that doesn't get you into the places where you're talking about the united states being justified kind of traipsing around the world uh stomping on everybody to to get its way yeah so um i think that there is a sort of minimalist answer to this question and then a maximalist uh answer um and one seems more achievable to me than the other but uh, i think we should keep in mind um the the minimalist answer is that i think that our non-proliferation uh like the left shouldn't abandon um this this goal of non-proliferation and ultimately um disarmament of uh of the world uh, from all types of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we should continue to sort of um, the diplomatic project that that's uh, embodied in uh, uh, 
documents and instruments like uh, the non-proliferation treaty and try to build upon those and even even um, uh, to sort of sh- strengthen uh, I- international norms against um, wep- uh, the possession and the use of weapons. Uh, there's a there's a more recent treaty that I. Uh, highlight in my piece uh, that uh, is the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which uh, isn't enforced yet because so few states have ratified it. Um, but uh, once it it comes into force, it would actually make uh, the possession of uh, nuclear weapons um, be considered uh, illegal. Um, uh, by any state that is a party to um, the the treaty, because our current um, legal regime uh, under the Non-Proliferation Treaty makes it basically okay for for some states to have weapons and and uh, the, the states that currently have weapons to have them under international law, um, but illegal for states that don't have weapons to sort of pursue um, them. So this would just sort of tighten um the 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 sort of legal regime up a little bit um if if this treaty went into force uh i think that we we should also basically pressure the united states um uh from from within the united states basically pressure our policymakers to sort of renounce um this uh, imagined right to go around the Security Council um, in some cases uh, to to disarm uh, weapon states. We saw this most recently um, in uh, sort of the the strikes on Syria that have happened um, over the past two Aprils, uh, where there there wasn't a sort of um, uh, international consensus uh, that, that legitimated those strikes. Um, we just took it upon ourselves to enforce uh, uh, a norm uh, against the use of chemical weapons in violation of very clear rules laid out in the UN Charter. Um, I think that that is highly problematic. Um, the counter argument to my view is that you can't rely on the Security Council um, to sort of promote uh, disarmament because uh, certain states have an interest in exercising their veto uh, to prevent you from enforcing norms against um, uh, against the use of these weapons. Uh, and my response to that would be that, you know, the answer is not to, to, to forsake the UN system, but to sort of channel our diplomatic energies into reforming it. It doesn't really make sense to me um, that that a handful of countries um, should have veto power over um, the the basically decisions that that affect the entire globe. We should try to make the Security Council more democratic and get rid of the veto, um, basically. And uh, thinking, just to conclude, thinking uh, more broadly, as I was doing research for my piece, I was talking, um, I I went on a phone call with Jeffrey Lewis, um, who uh, is uh, arms control wonk on 
uh, Twitter. Uh, he runs a blog called Arm Control Wonk that I highly recommend anyone listening to your program um, to to check out if they're interested in nonproliferation. Um, and I was hoping he could give me some sort of concrete ideas about how we could uh, pursue uh, sort of peaceful nonproliferation in uh, the international system that we have. And he uh, sort of was reluctant to propose any uh, particular policy and instead pointed me to a uh, sort of highly uh, I idealistic but sort of inspiring for the left um, uh, uh writings by uh, Jonathan Schell um, that basically argue that the only way that we are going to really disarm the world is by imagining a world with far less interstate competition where national identities are sort of subordinated to uh, a common uh, international identity, um, uh, sort of real internationalism, um, and that that's something that the left should strive for going forward in the future. Oh, well, okay, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's all? That's it? Really? Oh, man. Yeah. We'll knock that yeah. The, the, I think... I, I think one of the, if I was to critique my piece, one of the issues that the, the left has is really good at, at identifying problems in foreign policy, but we're still working out um, sort of a concrete positive vision of foreign policy. But I think we need to keep our eyes on, on the prize and, and the, the things that we agree on are basically that our foreign policy should be egalitarian and that it should be demilitarized and um, uh, those two principles should guide us as we try to come up with more sort of wonky technocratic solutions to the problems we face. Yeah, those seem good. I could get behind yeah. that. Uh, okay. Um, Michael, Johanna, thank you again for uh, coming on and twice actually, and then for putting up with my dysfunction as we tried to get this interview recorded uh your piece uh again is at fellow travelers blog i'll post a link to it in the show description is there any place else i mean anything else you'd like to plug any place people can uh follow you your writing uh you know go ahead and sell it i you know i'm i write very occasionally um as i mentioned earlier i'm sort of a tourist in writing about these subjects not really a true bona fide expert i really appreciate the fellow travelers blog so i think that anyone who listens to your show that isn't um a uh, subscriber to their email list or who doesn't read them regularly should subscribe and read them regularly um, and if you want to follow me as I uh, post nonsense on Twitter, uh, <laughs> you can follow me at Michael underscore Yuhana, Y-O-U-H-A-N-A. Um, and yeah, that's, put, if I'll, I do write, that's where it will be published. I'll put that in the show description too so people can find you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> again, Michael, <laughs> thanks for coming on. And, Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, we'll try to do this again soon. Yeah, thanks. Okay, uh, that was my interview with Michael Johanna. Uh, I want to thank him again for his flexibility and generosity with his time. 
and uh, I will uh, post uh, his Twitter handle and a link to his piece at Fellow Travelers blog in the show description. I apologize again for technical difficulties, everything from my lousy power grid here at the house that prevented us from doing this on Tuesday to the couple of splotchy patches there in the recording where our Skype connection didn't seem to connect very well. Uh, with that, I will say uh, I hope you all have a good weekend and we'll be back next week. I have another interesting interview lined up uh, for you and then we will uh, probably talk about Ibn Battuta actually. I think it's been a while since we talked about him and the Ibn Battuta project has been ongoing since then. Uh, so we might touch base with him I think next week uh, in addition to our interview. Uh, that's it. Uh, as always, thanks for listening and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.